contemplation on the two-natured Redeemer as expounded from the passage in John 8. Our first contemplation was this, based on primarily on the words, before Abraham was born, I am. The first contemplation was from this morning. I said this, Behold our two-natured Redeemer. Because here he is, speaking as man about his divinity. He can't be speaking as man about his humanity because humanity isn't I am. Humanity comes into being, is sustained in being, and is changed in being. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature among men according to his divinity or humanity. Thank you. Tom got it right. According to his humanity, divinity doesn't grow. Divinity is not elastic. Divinity does not develop like humanity develops. We started very small in in our mother's wombs. We developed inside the womb. We've developed outside the womb. We're still developing. Some of us need more development than others, but all of us are developing, okay? So he can't develop according to his divinity. So here in John 8, 56, he is speaking as man about his divinity. That we have a two-natured redeemer, by the way, is not a truth only found in John's gospel. It's all throughout John's gospel. Matter of fact, John's gospel has been most influential throughout the history of the church to distinguish between the two natures. It's very clear. He's He's very man and very God, according to John's gospel. But it's not only in John's gospel. It's in all the gospels. It's in the book of Acts. It's in all the epistles. It's in the book of Revelation. But let me give you an example. In 1 John, we read these words. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out in the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, every false prophet, that confesses that Jesus, excuse me, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, which means false prophets say that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. Okay, So they deny the real humanity of Christ. And there was various ways in the first century and subsequent to the first century that the real humanity was denied. It was, um, uh, it was, he looked like a real man, but he wasn't. Some people said that. He's very man is what John is saying. A true prophet uh, or the spirit of God confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and he is from God. There's that fromness language again. So he's very man. At the end of 1 John, we read these words, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. What does this refer to? His Son, Jesus Christ. This Son, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. He's very God. So he's very man toward the beginning. If you don't confess that he came in the flesh, you're not from God. 
If you confess that he came from God in the flesh, you are from God. He's very man, and at the end, he's very true God and eternal life. The Apostle Paul teaches the same doctrine. Whose are the fathers and and the promises, that is. From whom is the Christ, from ancient Israel, is the Christ according to the flesh, very man, who is over all God, blessed forever, amen, very God, right? So the Gospel of John is not the only place in the New Testament where we have clear biblical warrant to conclude we've got a two-natured Redeemer. It's in the first John. It's in the book of Romans 9.5. That's what I just read. It's in Peter. Peter teaches the same thing. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, comma, you know the next two words, Jesus Christ. He's our God and Savior. Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. Titus, or Paul in Titus has this very similar construction where God and Savior equals our Lord Jesus Christ. He's very God and he's very man, and it's very clear in the New Testament in many places. This is why, by the way, we confess. Here's our confession of faith. Listen listen to this. This will sound like Scripture. Um, It'll sound like the Nicene Creed, and it'll sound like the Chalcedonian Statement. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah of the seed of Abraham and David according to the scriptures so that, here it is, two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion which very pers- which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Very God, very man. There's the Christian confession right there in our own confession. This is why we sing, fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, son of God, and, what's the next one? Son of man, beautiful Savior. Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forever be thine. 127, I think, is that hymn. 128? 129, thank you. See that? We, we sing two-natured Redeemer language. And I think the more theologically aware we are of what that means, the more robust the hymns become, the more of a teaching tool these ancient, these old hymns become. By the way, could somebody write a new hymn that teaches good doctrine? Yeah. I can tell you this much, though. These old ones teach good doctrine. 
Now, it's one thing to like that Psalm 129, Fairest Lord Jesus, or even to like the historical creeds and confessions on the identity of our Lord. Okay, you might be sitting here going, wow, I like that hymn, or wow, those old creeds and our confessions sound great. But it's quite another to believe that he is the I am. It's one thing to go, wow, good historical creedal theology, wonderful hymnody. It's another thing to say, I believe what he said. He is the I am. Remember what words of our Lord caused such consternation in the Jews, unless you believe that I am You will die in your sins. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So the the most important thing is to not not to say, oh yeah, that's historic orthodoxy. The most important thing is to ask your question, "Do, do I believe what he's saying is true? Because if you do, you won't die in your sins. I've said this before. Whatever dying in your sins is, it doesn't sound very good, right? It means to die guilty and under the just condemnation of divine justice and therefore condemnable and consignable to a place of everlasting torment. But if you believe, unless you believe, you'll die, you'll die in your sins. But if you believe, you won't die in your sins. You won't die guilty. You won't die condemnable. You won't die consignable. Well, you will be consigned, but not in a bad sense. You'll be consigned to glory because Christ has dealt with your lack of righteousness, your presence of guilt, and earned heaven for you. So I hope you believe those things. A second contemplation is behold the gospel promise that caused this final scene. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That was, that's a gospel promise made by our Lord. And that's what caused all this. You're full of a demon. You think you're better than Abraham, greater than Abraham. Uh, and the prophets, they all died. And, and yet you're saying if somebody believes your word, they're not going to die. Therefore, they didn't believe in your word. And he says, no, Abraham believed, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. But this was a gospel promise. This must be a promise that death loses its condemning sting for all true believers. It doesn't lose its presence for believers. Believers still die. But it loses its condemning sting so that when a believer dies, we don't mourn like the world does for unbelievers. Uh, By the way, you know what a lot of people do when unbelievers die? They say, well, they're in a happier place. They're not in a happier place. You know how many lies go on at funerals? I've sat there and heard them. In fact, one time I was sitting in the front row because I was a pallbearer, and I'm going, this is not right, this is not right. One of my brothers grabs my leg. He says, you need to keep it. Keep it down. You, you can do my funeral and say whatever you want. And I said, okay, all right. But it is true for believers. When they die, they are in a better place. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though death comes to believers, it does not come with the same power and damning effects. And this was a gospel promise that Jesus made. You believe my word, 
I got your back at death. Third contemplation is behold the antiquity of Christianity. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. You know, in Hebrews 11, in Hebrews 11, it talks about the, the hope of uh, Sarah, Abraham, Sarah, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Enoch, right? And it says they saw the promises from a distance. What does that mean? They, had their, uh, they could see 1,500 years in advance, the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of the Lord, and they could see 2,000 years after that, or however long until the Lord comes again, and they, they saw the resurrection. And I don't think it means that. They saw the promises. I think it's the same thing as Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw, he believed the promises. He believed the revelation of God about the coming skull-crushing seed of the woman who ends up being our, the Lord of glory, uh, the line of, line of the tribe of Judah, the branch of David, the uh, arm of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the temple builder promised in the Old Testament that's related to David. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of those things, you know, the Old Testament saints put together? We don't know, but they put enough together that we can call them brothers and sisters. Behold, the antiquity of Christianity. I think the first Christians were Adam and Eve. Remember a few weeks ago, Genesis 4.1, Adam had relations with Eve and she bore a man. Uh, with the help of the Lord, or she bore a man, comma, space, the Lord, in the marginal note, which is actually a literal translation and you remember that German guy, I forgot his name, poor woman, thought she gave birth to the Messiah. The, time, the doctrine was right, the timing was wrong. She thought Cain was this skull-crushing seed of the woman. If the old German was right, and I think he was, then there was a messianic consciousness very early on in our first parents, right after their fall and the pronouncement of the curse. I mean, God clothed them, gave them clothes. You know the great lines in hymns that talk about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, divine clothing given to us by God that only God could earn and confer upon us and all that stuff. He was picturing that way early on. How much they understood of all that, we don't know, but they put enough together to have... Uh, these statements by the Lord Jesus, true of Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The promise antedates, predates the law of Moses. One man said, Christianity is older than Judaism, unquote. That's a great line. Because, you know, we kind of got trained to think, oh, the Old Testament's all about Judaism, the New Testament's all about Christianity. This guy says, no, Christianity predates Judaism. Judaism is a, is a Old Testament religion. Is a, it's the parenthesis. You know what a parenthesis is? God has a plan, and then there's this thing that's going on within the plan to serve the overall plan that's temporary. Judaism isn't the eternal thing. Christianity is. The temporary thing is the old covenant's types and shadows. 
that pointed forward to the substance which is in Christ. So what is the Old Testament all about? Christ and Christianity to come. So I love this line. The promise antedates the law of Moses. Christianity is older than Judaism. And I think that is my final contemplation. Behold the antiquity of Christianity. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ, and he saw it. That is, he believed in the promises about the Christ who was to come, who has now come, but hadn't come yet. The Christ who was also, I am, at the time that Abraham looked forward to him in his incarnate state, this one who would become incarnate existed as God, the Son, before his incarnation, and was revealed to be coming at the incarnation. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and this time to think through it. Bless now as we take the supper together to honor you for the good of our souls. We ask that you would bless in Jesus' name. Amen.